Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, friends, good morning. As it is each week, it is yet again a joy and a privilege to be with you. And even if we are gathered in this unconventional way, spread across the east side of Atlanta and across our globe, it is still a gift to have the technology that we have to gather in this way. And if you're a guest with us, again, I do hope that you have felt warmly welcomed in our midst. And we ask that whether you're a guest with us or a longtime regular member, that you would take a minute and fill out the check-in form in the comments section. That is so helpful, so tremendously helpful to our leadership as we do our best to keep up with you all in this time where we are physically apart. So take a minute and do that as we try to help our congregation remain strong in this in-between time. Well, friends, as you just observed with our candle lighting this morning, is the second Sunday in the yearly Christian liturgical season named Advent. And if you did not grow up in a tradition that celebrated Advent, know that it is, it is one of these seasons on the Christian calendar, the ancient Christian calendar, that invites the people of, of God, people who identify as Christian, to sort of carve out this this elongated section of time where we do some, do some contemplation, some meditation, some introspection, some, some looking at ourselves and our lives and our spirits, our souls, and, and doing inventory and seeking the face of God. And this year on this sort of collective quest during Advent to seek the face of God, we're embracing as a community this, this sort of challenge or charge to ask for us as individuals, what does it look like for me to become this sort of everyday mystic? Mystics are present in, in all of the world's great religions, and within Christianity they have their own sort of deep-rootedness, and there are these people who have developed throughout their lives this tremendous capacity to experience the power and the presence of God in places that many of us might think strange or odd or out of the ordinary. There are people who are always paying attention, looking, seeking, listening even to the silence of the divine in our world and in our lives. And last Sunday, we, we looked at the gospel reading that was provided by the lectionary for this year, and it was Jesus' sort of apocalyptic words to his earliest followers to stay awake, to stay prepared, to be ready, to be paying attention, because we don't know when the next arrival, when the next unique iteration of God's presence is going to show up and how it is going to be, and we don't want to miss it. We don't want to be so so tied up in some other aspect of our lives that the divine work that's being done and that's taking place here on this planet that we, that we miss an intersection with it and transformation by it. So Advent, as these everyday mystics, 
the first Sunday of Advent, we've called out this invitation to stay awake, to stay paying attention, to not fall asleep, to not simply let, as the days get longer throughout December, to not simply let Advent pass us by, to get a little bit more sleep, but to be awake when it's dark out, to seek God's face in this time. Which brings us to this morning in our second Sunday of Advent, and this, this theme, this, this way of practicing the mystic path of, of silence, of ceasing to speak, and how might that practice come to bear in our lives as we also seek to stay awake, as we also seek to pay attention, but we also maybe seek to speak less this Advent season. So friends, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, and if you're not familiar with an Advent um, liturgical tradition, it is, it is common to reflect on the, the Baptist named John, John the Baptist, the first or second Sunday of Advent, and this morning we're going to be not looking particularly at John, but looking at his parents this second Sunday of Advent. So friends, as you listen, I invite you to hear the word of God for us from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, where Luke writes, In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. Zechariah's wife was a descendant of Aaron, the priestly line, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren. And both, she and her husband, were getting along in years. Well, one day when Zechariah was serving his priest before God, his section was on duty, his section of the priesthood, and Zechariah was chosen by lot, by chance, the drawing of ancient straws, if you will, according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. And as that was happening, as Zechariah was in the temple, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw the angel, Luke tells us that he was terrified, that fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. John must never drink strong drink or wine, because even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
John will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God with the spirit and the power of the prophet Elijah. He will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children, of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, how, how will I know this is so? For I'm an old man, and my wife is getting along in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you good news. But now... Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. And the people realized that he had a vision in the sanctuary. He motioned to them, kept motioning to them, yet remained unable to speak. And when Zechariah's time of service had ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. Elizabeth said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, I ask that these words that I have prepared might indeed be your word for your people in your time. God, please speak through them and were necessary in spite of me. And as I preach, God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the collective meditations across our, our space, our time, that all of it will indeed be found good, right, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, our great rock, God, our redeemer. All of this in the strong name of the Christ, we pray. Amen. John the Baptist, the one described in all four Gospels as this way paver, this one who came to prepare the way to do work ahead of more that was to come for the coming of God into the world. John, this Baptist, was almost like a, like a down payment of God's work on our planet of what was coming, and John and his ministry, of course, makes waves, quite literally. That was a baptism joke. We're just going to keep moving along. <laughs> but it is interesting that it's only Luke's gospel, right? Out of all four gospels, all of which do include the ministry of John the Baptist at the beginning, only Luke speaks to the origin story of John. Which means that perhaps, I guess, only Luke had access to the, the telling of this story, access that maybe the other writers didn't have, or maybe Luke found something particular within this story that was important for the audience to which Luke was putting together his rendering of the good news. When the story, 
Luke begins with this man, Zechariah, and we're told that he's married to this woman, Elizabeth. And up front, we learn that this couple, they're, they're older, and they're past the age of childbearing, and they've not been able to conceive. And we learn later in the text from the angel that they have been praying earnestly, probably for their whole married lives together to be able to do so, but those prayers have not allowed them to have a child. And Luke knows most likely that this story of this elderly couple, this elderly faithful Jewish couple, olden years without child would immediately draw in the imagination and the attention of, of Luke's ancient Jewish audience, the book of Genesis and the man Abraham and his wife Sarah, the promised people with the promised descending line, yet they were too old to have children when Isaac came around. This story is meant to already begin to place a frame of reference in the mind of the hearer of a story that's already taken place in ancient scripture that in some new fresh way God is at work doing another work of good news in our world. And Luke, he's very clear with us. He, he wants to be, to, to not have any distraction as to why Zechariah and Elizabeth are childless. He says it in the text, that they are faithful, Torah-abiding, religiously observant Jewish people. They're upright before their God. There's, there's not more that they could have been doing in terms of their piety. It wasn't, it wasn't as though they were, were not able to conceive because they weren't pious enough, they weren't religious enough, they didn't pray enough. Luke says, no, none of that. They did all of that right. They were really good people who at the same time were not able to have their own children. And Luke goes on. He doesn't just tell us that Zechariah and Elizabeth are this older couple who are these faithful Torah-abiding Jews. He also says that Zechariah also happens to be a priest, and Elizabeth descends from the line of the original line of priests, Aaron. So, so they have priestly blood on both sides. And in ancient Israel, you didn't, you didn't decide you wanted to be a priest when you grow up. You were either born into a bloodline that allowed for that, or you weren't. So we're told that there's priestly blood on both sides of this marriage. And Zechariah, he's clergy, he's a temple priest, has probably been that for his entire working life. And Elizabeth is a, the spouse of a priest, a pastor's wife, if you will. And here's the thing, in an age where where there were all kinds of, of, of beliefs, both, both within Judaism, but, but also just sort of swimming in the world and the culture about, about God, or, 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 or if you were in a polytheistic section of the world about the gods, there were, there were these beliefs. And, and, and they had some, some were present even within Judaism that, that may have made some in their community and their village and their neighborhood treat them poorly or ignore them or give them the cold shoulder because after all, what kind, of, what kind of Jewish priest, faithful Jewish priest with a wife also from the priesthood, why wouldn't they be able to procreate? 
It's very likely that Elizabeth experienced a lot of isolation and experienced a lot of either said or unsaid words of shame, of harm, of feeling like there was something she had done to make God angry or to not please God enough, or that there was something her husband wasn't doing or was doing that brought this on their family, but they had no idea what in the world that could be. So what Luke has done here at the very beginning of his gospel is he's, he's creating, he's not creating, but he's retelling the story that, that, that illustrates a, a, sort of a parad- paradigmatic problem of the Jewish people in the first century. Because Luke's point is that there are faithful Jewish people and families throughout Israel in the first century and scattered across the diaspora, yet it was still the case. Yet it was still the case that Rome was in charge and Israel was under imperial oppression. There were plenty of people, Luke's point is, doing the right thing, being faithful, but things weren't going the way that that folks believed that they were supposed to. Luke begins his gospel by putting on display a theological and puzzling problem, one that I would argue probably many ancient first century Jews would have immediately related to. Because I don't necessarily think that Luke is just talking about Zachariah and Elizabeth. I think he's putting them on a on a, putting them up as an example of, of something that many ancient Jewish people, Torah-observing Jewish faithful people experienced. God, if we're doing the right things in life, if we're following the rules, if we're obeying you, if we're doing what we believe you're asking of us, then why is Rome, why do they still have the, their crushing boot on our throats as a people? Why aren't we free? See, the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, it's bigger than just a retelling of, of their one event that they experienced, but I think it's pointing to a bigger trajectory, to a bigger reality. But in the specifics of their experience, it again illustrates this theological mystery that, that probably most, if not all of us, have struggled with from time to time in our lives. And if not in our own personal lives, maybe in the lives of those that we know or that are around us. Many of us have lost people to cancer at an age that people aren't supposed to die. Whatever disease or tragedy or accident where somebody who, it just makes no sense for their presence to be taken from this earth We don't understand how someone with such a remarkable and faithful human existence to the work of God in the world is not with us any longer on this planet. Most, if not all of us listening this morning, whether it be someone immediate in our lives or somebody close to us, we've asked this question of of why? of of why do people who by all by all seeming reality are doing the very best they can to be the most faithful people on this planet to the divine will in this world yet 
the same bad stuff seems to happen to them as happens to everybody. And it's not wrong of us to ask why, to sit with this question, to visit this question, and to wrestle with it. Because it is a wrestling with the world as we actually experience it, not as we're told it's supposed to be, but as we actually experience it. And my experience of the world as it is, is that the world is not perfect. And our human bodies, they, they share in, in those imperfections. And sometimes bad things happen. And it's not always a consequence of anything other than the reality that we're human creatures in bodies that can be destroyed, can be hurt, can be harmed. It's the nature of the world we live in. If there were a tighter link between good fortune for, for those people who, who, who seem to comply or live up to whatever code or, or ritualistic prescription of religion, if there was a tighter link between good fortune coming to those people, then, then probably a lot more humans on the planet would be even more faithful and observant of, of whatever religious tradition they find themselves in if they believe that that somehow brings about physical and bodily well-being. But I think if we're honest and if we really pay attention to the world around us, it's, mis it's mysterious and it doesn't always make sense why some people get cancer, other people don't, why some people are, leave this world far too early and why other people live to be 100. Zachariah and Elizabeth have been faithful in their lives and their religion, and even with Zachariah in his ministry as a priest, and they're not able to have children. A problem that finds itself threaded throughout ancient Judaism, into and throughout our Christian faith, and it puts on display the reality that there are, there are not faith systems with, with guarantees or promises of health or of wealth or fill in the blank in this life. Christianity and Judaism, they're not a, if you do this then, that will happen in your physical reality. Our obedience to God, it's not, a, it's not sort of a pact that we have with the divine that, that, that bad things then won't happen to us if we're faithful. And if we are faithful, bad things will happen to us. There are too many exceptions on both sides and in both directions to show that there is a great mystery. It's okay to ask why, but sometimes we need to hold up before we try to answer too quickly. Luke's gospel begins with a world where good, righteous people who are depicted as doing the best they can are living not with what they hoped would be their best life, if you will. In the world of the first century, these faithful Jewish people, they're still coming up short, they're still experiencing pain and suffering, they're in their latter years and they've been praying for a child for their whole lives and I think that what we encounter here is an, an older couple who is settling into some second half of life disappointment. 
He was coming to terms with some realities that they had held out and held out and held out hope for, but now that they have, have finally had to go through the grieving process and let go of. And very possibly, they've, they've worked through that as a couple. And Zach, Zachariah, with Elizabeth, has worked through that reality and has maybe come to some sort of peace on the other side of it. But then this strange thing happens at the beginning of Luke's gospel that turns everything on its head. And just as an aside, if you've never read the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, I think it's remarkably important that these books were included in the canon of Scripture because they stand as these witnesses to the mystery of it all to the man Job, who, who is depicted as living a righteous, faithful life, yet he loses everything. The, the book of Ecclesiastes that sort of whimsically questions the meaning of it all. They both, in their own unique ways, they, they give us permission as humans to wrestle with, with what is going on in the world, with this divine human arrangement, with why... Some things do or don't happen for some people and why they do or don't for others. And where does our faith come into the discussion of the whole reality? I think Zechariah and Elizabeth are really important at the beginning of Luke's gospel because they remind us today in the, the year of 2020 that there's still a whole lot of mystery in the world and there's still a whole lot we don't understand. And I think as we, we live into this journey of becoming everyday mystics, we're really, we're, we're given permission as mystics to, to sort of lean into the inf infinitude of God, to, to lean into this reality that we don't have the capacity to grasp all that there is in God. And that God is not simply or easily summed up or boxed up or predictable or formulaic. But that God is a living being and as such God remains mystery to us. The world is a living system in relationship with a living God. And there's always mystery when life is present and active and dynamic and relationship is at play. You see, friends, the mystic is less about trying to get the world to line up with what they think and what they want to be the case. And instead, what the mystic is, is really seeking to do is to learn to align themselves, their own existence, with the way they perceive the world to actually be. The mystic isn't just trying to like go like a bull in a china shop and, and change everything to fit their fancy. The mystic is, is trying to, to, to understand and to see the complexity of the world in front of them and to then allow their being to be transformed in this relational way with the world that we inhabit. It's this, it's this sort of like way of, of working to come to peace with that which is. working with God to become the kinds of people who have the capacity that, that whatever comes our way in this life, whether good or bad or awful, that we 
have the capacity as spiritual beings to, to hold on to wisdom and to, to the reality that, that we can be faithful and steadfast and loving no matter what we experience. The mystic, much further down the path than, than I can even imagine. These are people that so much of the time, they're, they're not shaken by every change of the tide, every, every movement of the earth under their feet because the Christian mystic, we have, we're living toward this unrelenting, mysterious hope that is bigger than the news, that is bigger than whoever may or may not be in charge of whatever politic, that is bigger than whatever diagnosis we may have just received in our life or in the life of a loved one, that is bigger than than anything that we can imagine. God is, God is larger than all of the this that we experience and see in this life. And the mystic rests in the infinite, the un, the, like the bottomless, the bottomless love and goodness of God. So no matter how far you fall, you cannot fall below the bottomless love of the divine. You can't go lower than God. There is no place outside the reach of God. The mystic rests in the conviction that the only thing that is eternal is good and everything that is good is eternal. In some mysterious, beautiful, glorious way, God's forever is somehow going to make all of the this, whatever you have in front of you in possibly the hardest year of your life to date, that whatever this is in front of you, God has plans to make it all worth it. Whatever that means. And however that works itself out. It, it's, it's, it's so simple in some ways that, that God is, is better than we can imagine and more loving than we can even fathom. And that that's always waiting. No matter what happens, no matter what goes wrong, no matter what we screw up, no matter what humanity messes up on this planet, God is bigger than it, and God is always waiting in love. And we can't go outside the net, the expanse of God's love. It's impossible. We're not capable of doing it, even though we may try. And in our story this morning, it does, it does the mysterious and the unexpected. And it's so mysterious and it's so unexpected that our protagonist, Zechariah, he disappoints God's angel in the story. I love this. And I would think possibly the early, an early Jewish audience might have chuckled when they heard this part of the story because we're told that, that when Gabriel shows up first, Zechariah, a trained priest, mind you, he's been doing this his whole life in the temple, but this time we're told that he's struck to the core with fear. And he is overwhelmed. He is terrified. And I, I'll be honest, like I've, I've swung the incense carrier in our sanctuary in East Atlanta numerous, numerous times. And I've never had an encounter like this with a divine being. And even if I did, I don't, I don't know that the, the church's camera system would catch it. I don't really know how that works. Remain agnostic on, on all that. But, but Gabriel does. He experiences some kind of message, vision from, from a messenger of God, and he is terrified. And then Gabriel says, Zechariah, calm down. 
Calm down. I have good news, not bad. It's not going to get worse. It's going to get better. It's going to get better, I promise. And then Gabriel goes on to tell him that he and Elizabeth will have a child. He will be John, and he will be a force to be reckoned with for the coming kingdom of God in this world, and that John is worth experiencing joy in the present, that his coming into this world is worth Elizabeth and Zachariah experiencing joy for the rest of their lives together. And what are we told? But the Zachariah, I used to be kind of judgy of Zachariah, but the older I get, the less judgy I become of him here. Zachariah, he's got issues with what the angel's saying. And there could be a whole host of reasons for this. But I think it's very possible that Zechariah is experienced in this second half of life kind of disappointment where he can't just say, well, there's always tomorrow or there's always the day after that or there's always next year. Elizabeth is too old to conceive. That chapter in, in, in Zechariah's mind has been closed. And now this, this angel, this messenger from God is trying to open it back up and I wonder if Zachariah is almost a little bit like, really? Now? I'm old. Like, I'm not sure that me and Elizabeth and I bringing a child into this world is the best thing right now. And Gabriel seems a little bit frustrated that his message is not received with complete joy and exuberant jubilation. And we're told that he strikes the priest mute. Just kind of an awesome superpower, if you're honest. I don't know why none of the Marvel comics have the capacity to mute people. We have remotes that can mute televisions, but I don't know, do any of you have this experience with Alexa? You're like, Alexa, please turn down. And then nothing happens. I don't know if it's just my Alexa or if she hates me. But to mute a human, that's a pretty cool superpower. And Zachariah gets muted at the end of this story because he asks the angel the question, how can this be? My wife is beyond the age of bearing children. I'm old. We've been praying for this our whole lives. So why? Why of all the, the ways that Gabriel could have responded to him does he just take his voice away? Maybe because sometimes we humans are a little bit too quick to react. Maybe the, the way that's antithetical to the way of the, the contemplative mystic is really fast, off-the-cuff responses to things in our lives, in our world, in the news, in conversation. Maybe we humans just sometimes say way too much too fast, and then we wish we could back ourselves up and get those words back inside of our mouths. Maybe at times God's invitation to us, humanity from eternity, is to just, just stop talking for a minute. Take more than a second to respond. Maybe sit in a moment of mystery, of divine silence, to shut up and allow space for some awe, for some wonder to, to, to creep into our experience. You know, it seems like Gabriel's kind of frustrated with, with Zechariah, but maybe the truth is Gabriel just, 
he gets it, he knows, and he also knows the best thing for Zachariah right now. Just be quiet, buddy. At the birth of a child in a hospital, we don't start asking questions about like cellular biology and DNA. And No, we, we revel in the mystery of a life right in front of us and a presence. And sometimes these big existential theological questions, they need to be put aside for a season while we just sit and wonder in the awe and the I don't know why of it all. Sometimes there are seasons where we intentionally accept our own limitations of epistemology, of knowledge, of our capacity to know, and we just shut up and we sit with in silence and experience the world as it is and we observe and ask what we can learn from it instead of what we're commenting about it. Sometimes it's time to turn off the commentary feature and just listen. He wasn't struck deaf. He could still hear. I bet Zachariah did a lot of listening those nine months leading up to the birth of his son. I bet it was good for him, and I bet he grew a lot in the mystic way. So friends, on the second Sunday of Advent, I invite you, I invite myself to aspire as we seek to become everyday mystics to Take time this Advent to be quiet and to listen, to embrace times of silence, just times of silence, where we listen for the voice of God and acknowledge that it might just be that God, yes, is with you in presence, but God's not saying anything. You can sit with a loved one and not say a word and still feel and experience love from them. There's nothing wrong with asking the big questions, so don't hear that at all. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with, with our priest's question this morning. I think it was honest. But I also think that there are some periods where it's time to, to put that question aside and just revel in the wonder and the mystery of what is happening. Advent is yet again this invitation for us to slow down, to wake up, to be quiet, to stop talking so much and to see that the glory of the divine, even in the brokenness, is all around. And that in John, the work of God was going to move forward in the world in a remarkable way. And that just future hope of what John was going to bring was worthy of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth's joy in the present. And friends, during Advent, we have the same to hold on to as we wait and as we hope for the future coming of God's kingdom among us. So maybe so, stay awake, friends, and let us be silent. Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.